The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And we have with us today our two extra special guests, Ruth Bernstein of EMC Research. Hello. And an old standby here, Paul Mitchell of uh, PDI. I don't mean too old a standby. Well, I'm getting old. <laughs> we ran today, thanks to these two, we were able to run today a story in Capital Weekly on uh, the new voters, uh, the new people who voted in 2016. Are they going to come back uh, for the midterms in 2018? That question is sort of hanging over us all, and I wondered, uh, you guys have some special thoughts about that. Ruth, what do you think? Yeah, so we, um, as as many people know, there were a lot of people who registered to vote uh, in 2016, and so we took a close look at, there are about 2.2.5 million voters who registered that don't have any prior vote history, and we did a, a random sample survey of, of that group. And what we're finding is you know, uh, many of them are really engaged and actually interested in this election. We sort of broke up those when you, when we anal in our analysis, we kind of divided them up into three groups. There's one group that say they re-registered. Maybe they move, but they don't have any vote history. Maybe they move from out, out of state. They kind of look like everybody else. So we think they're new registrants, but they're really not. And in their own minds, they're not. Then there's another group that's kind of small that this was their first time. So they were young. They maybe just became citizens. So they may not be great participators. You know, a lot of 19-year-olds are going to move around. They might not pay attention so much. But then about half of the new registrants, we're calling them newly engaged. They registered for this election in 2016, either for the primary or the general. Because it was a presidential election? Yeah. And, you know, they voted for, a, they, reg, they said that they registered for a number of different reasons. A friend or family told them to. It's their civic duty. Someone came to their house. They saw a social media post. So they registered, and they and and most of them uh, actually did turn out and vote. And we're seeing they're actually very uh, engaged and interested. They're following. They say they're following politics. Many of them. Uh, many of them say that they've protested or contacted an elected official. Really. Um, and you know, I think it will. It'll be will. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Do they actually turn out? And. Uh, you know, we wanted to do this survey because there's sort of a tendency, I think, you know, there's a lot of effort put into registering voters in this in this cycle. And then frequently on the campaign side, we say, oh, they're new registrants. Maybe they won't turn, you know, they won't show up again for four years. Well, this is a lot of voters. And, uh, you know, if they if if we don't pay attention to them, uh, maybe they won't turn out, but they seem to be active, engaging. They could make a difference in some of these really close races around the state. Hmm. Paul, do you see any particular issues that trigger turnout? I mean, we always try yeah. to predict turnout. Well, what's interesting is we're talking about turnout for a gubernatorial cycle election. And what we're looking at is people who were the surge registrants in a presidential cycle. Mm -hmm. So in a presidential cycle, right before the election, it's all over the news. It's all over social media. I mean, Black Eyed Peas is doing concerts. And it's like, you know, it's like hip and everybody's registering. It's this big wave, right? And the wave that we saw in 2016 was the biggest ever. We saw more than 2 million people register to vote in a primary, yeah. actually set the voter registration record in the state at the primary, and then actually exceeded it again in the general. So the registration surge was so huge that 
in California, 40% of households in California have somebody who newly registered or re-registered in 2016. And that, and that tracks participation? You have lots of registration, tend to have more participation, or is it that too? Simplistic? When you have a lot of registration that's driven by an enthusiasm around election, you do have turnout in that election. So we actually saw that these new registrants turned out at a higher rate than the average electorate. Uh -huh. And then we also saw that these new registrants are younger. And so at a average age around 2930, these new registrants turned out at uh, around 78%, where other 29 to 30 year olds turned out at around 62%, the ones that weren't new registrants. So you see this hyper engaged, you know, really kind of forceful new part of the electorate coming in. Yeah. And then the challenge is, is what does that mean after the presidential cycle is over? Like once the party's over, who's going to show up and actually vote in a local municipal election or a gubernatorial primary, a gubernatorial election? In the past history, has been pretty negative. In fact, we These looked. These World Cup voters, they call them. Yeah, yeah, that's what I. Yeah, yeah. it's like college basketball. You know, until this election, <laughs> until this cycle, I only paid attention to the Final Four. I didn't pay attention to any regular season games. Yeah. I only watched the Super Bowl, and so. It's as if we came out of a, of a football season where we had seen record numbers of people watching the Super Bowl, yeah. and then we want to infer how many people are going to watch opening game next year. And the data suggests that there's this huge drop-off, and that there is a segment of these newly registered voters who won't engage again for four more years. And we did this analysis in two different period, time periods. In 2012, we did analysis looking at people who registered for the first time in 2008. And in 2016, we looked at analysis of people who registered for the first time in 2012. And in both of those, we saw huge segments of the electorate that didn't vote in any intervening elections. Not a gubernatorial general, not a primary, not a local city council race, nothing. And so moving forward, the data suggests that these voters aren't going to turn out in a gubernatorial primary or a gubernatorial general. Um, even the data from the LA City Council election we just had down in LA, all the LA County elections we had in March, uh, turnout was only 17% in LA. But among these new registrants, it was only 8%. Wow. So it's totally, you know, you, you have this data that suggests that there's this huge dropping off in turnout. Yeah. Now the catch is, we have to look at these prior examples and keep one foot firmly into the priors. But with the other foot, we can step into this, like what Ruth has done, what EMC has done, which is really analyze these new registrants. For the first time, really break these up into segments and to uh, kind of discern not just uh, why they registered to vote in the first place and, and who they are, but also their motivation going forward. And in that motivation going forward, we did find that the people that she says are in the poll are motivated. Those people were more like 30% turnout in the LA city elections. Do you get, do you get different, uh, maybe it's a Ruth question, do you get different results uh, from, the, from these age groups you're talking about using different techniques? I mean, do you, use, do you get them on cell phones? Do you get them on email? Well, uh, this texting. I this poll was done. Oh, this poll was done on the web. But uh -huh. one of the questions we asked was about where did you see news and information about this past election? Uh, and what's interesting is that among this group, these new registrants, 
um, you know, social media, social media posts was really high. Uh, in terms Particularly of their Facebook. recall. Especially, yeah. yeah especially Snapchat Facebook. had this, like, drop-off as you got to older, but Facebook was really strong, even in the middle age groups. More than Twitter. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Almost as much as traditional news. And, yeah, as traditional TV news. Go and on. so, you know, one of the questions it, it, that I have, sort of, is, is that in the past, like four years ago, eight years ago, really the way to communicate with voters was mostly through mail or TV. And so it was very expensive to mail to people who you thought, well, they're probably not going to vote based on they haven't really voted very much at all. Do we really spend the time and money trying to call them and, yeah. and mail to them? But with new technologies available doing uh, you know, social media, online, other communication that doesn't cost the campaigns maybe quite as much money, is there a way to keep these voters engaged and active? Because many of them are reporting that they're interested. They're following national politics. There's a lot happening in national politics to follow. So is there a way to keep these folks interested and maybe actually get them engaged in some of the, the off-season is, it, is it an issue thing that keeps them interested well, or is it a candidate There's a couple. This actually touched, we did. We talked about this on Politics on Tap when we were with Mindy yeah. Romero and, uh, and this is a very important issue in that, you know, Paul Mitchell says the prior examples show that these people aren't going to turn out and so do we stop there? and not mail these people, not phone these people, not put these people in our likely voter universes, which will, in fact, you know, reinforce, it'll create this self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. of non-participation. Or do we step out and say, look, Ruth's got data that shows that there's particular sets of these new registered voters, these newly engaged and, and, and interested voters that can be pushed to, can continue to be involved in politics, are still interested, half, 49%, of the Democrats in her survey said that they have par had protested. And so can we capture that or are we going to do what we've done in the past, which is just cut these people out of our mail universes and presume they're not going to vote and not mail to them, not reach out to them? And the answer might be what her study shows is that a lot of these voters are most easily reached by Facebook and online. Oh, wow. And so yeah. maybe what this the, the killing two birds with one stone is a, we want to try to get these people and keep these people engaged, but B, we don't want to spend a bunch of money on them because traditionally they haven't voted. So the possible sweet spot is using the less expensive tools in uh, social media, online targeting, that have really ballooned in this last election cycle. And we had a discussion about this in the prior article we just did a couple weeks ago. Um, and use that as a way to make sure these people aren't forgotten as we go into the next election cycle, because Ruth's data has a lot of evidence that shows that these people yeah. want to stay engaged. Well, on the natural, yeah. aren't they the most engaged? Wouldn't the people who protest, they, if half of them have been protesting at some point? Yeah, I mean, many of them, the, many of them are pro the, not everyone has protested, yeah, but yeah, obviously sure. the people who are protesting are the most engaged, but yeah. there's many people who aren't. I mean, the one challenge is going to be, they did say that they were following the presidential race really closely. Many of them were not following the state and local yeah. and, and ballot measures closely. They admit yeah. to that. We see um, that news coverage a lot, too. Uh, People, of course. State politics sort of gets shunted aside a lot of it, Always. And so that is always going to be the challenge, is they say they're active and interested, or they're interested and involved. So right. how do we uh, communicate with these folks and remind them that actually there's other stuff going on in the four years that, that, that affects their life and is important? Now, um, do you think that you know, the, the current 
moment that we're in where election uh, where politics are discussed on TV on social media basically 24 hours a day because of the phenomenon that is President Trump we never get a break from politics that's not usual and I wonder if that's driving some attention that will then spill over into interest in say a gubernatorial yeah. election or a senate election or even maybe a county I, I, mean, maybe I see it as a huge opportunity to keep uh, that because it is um, being talked about so much and I think the relationship between now your congress member and the White House, or even your legislature, that, that California maybe is, that our legislature is going to protect some things that we care about so much, or even down to your city, that, you know, sanctuary cities, other issues like that. I think it, it provides a huge opportunity to get these every four-year voters off the four-year cycle and maybe say, look, you know, your council, your, your congressman matters now. <laughs> you know, look, yeah. you know, we'll see. Yeah, it, it, maybe to, it's just a fantasy. <laughs> it is, and to to put it into kind of campaign world terms, the the question is: Can this can this gubernatorial cycle election be nationalized? Can people feel like they're either out there voting to support Trump because they believe in him, because you know he's being derailed by the media and whatever, or can they come out to be against Trump, like with Antonio Viragosa in his governor's race? suggesting that we might want to impeach the president, which is not the job of the governor, right? But it seems as though people are, are grasping and trying to figure out how to do this. So Ricardo Lara just put out a video, uh, essentially for his insurance commissioner campaign, that is about immigration and has big billboards with Trump's face on them. Kevin DeLeon just came out with a video for the Democratic Convention that again is trying to nationalize the election, not only to position himself and other Democrats trying to position themselves within the voters that are going to vote, but then potentially trying to use the discussion of the national election sure. as a way to drive more people. Now, the counterfactual to this is that in the LA city elections, there were a lot of mailers that went out that said, vote for me because you want to stand up to Trump. And that didn't really seem to resonate. You know, uh, you had... I mean, you had more L.A. residents going to the march in L.A. than you had voting in the L.A. elections. Right. I saw lots of uh, members of Congress doing this, a couple of legislators, but you see uh, Ted Lieu is one, does a lot of tweeting, basically contra Trump, uh, and seems to be getting good exposure. And well, a, you know, congressional members have shift. a much greater likelihood of being able to nationalize the election. Yeah. Um, whether they've turned out and vote for Ricardo Lara for insurance commissioner because of Trump is another question, you know? No. How do you, uh, what do you, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, getting aside from the national question, the last gubernatorial race was a little bit of a sleeper because Neil Kashkari was not exactly lighting, lighting up the Republican electorate. And I wonder if there is a candidate in this election, you know, there, it'll be an open election. So there could be a little more drama than we saw last, last election. Could that have an impact on bringing voters out? I mean, it was a little bit of a sleeper last time. I mean, part of what Ruth is suggesting, and I think I'm suggesting, is that there's almost not much in the state legislative races and gubernatorial races that are exciting these voters. They're not following that news. Um, even if you gussied up and made those candidates more attractive, that might have less value than trying to connect the dots for voters between their actions in, in their election for Congress or the city council or legislature or whatever to what's happening in D.C. I mean, that's the dance mm -hmm. that everybody mm -hmm. wants to be going to, you know? One of the things I wanted to make sure we didn't, we, we didn't leave without getting into oh, a little okay. bit. 
is for Ruth to talk a little bit about methodology, because one of the okay. things that voter, that the readers might see in this article is that this is, an, again, something we've done before, an a online poll. It's not a panel, where a panel is people who agree to take a poll for money. This is a uh, email to voters that we know that they're voters who are new registrants, mm -hmm. them taking a questionnaire on an online form, like a SurveyMonkey type instrument, but it's mm -hmm. one that they administer. And I'd like for Ruth to talk a little bit about her experience, because the sure. EMC is one of the firms that's kind of been leading in California in terms of doing online polling in this way, and so there's a lot of experience that she has. Right, so uh, we're actually really excited about being able to conduct polls in this way. We know that a lot of people don't really love it when we call them at home during dinner. Uh, you know, and now that everybody's switched to cell phones, it's getting even harder to reach people, and they don't necessarily, because of caller ID, want to take our calls. So uh, now um, many people put their email addresses when they register to vote or there's other ways to find them the same way. You have your phone number, you have your email address. And what we're doing is starting to, to draw random samples from the uh, voter list among people who have email addresses. And we write them a nice invitation and invite them to participate in our survey. And the great part about that is when we do it by phone, we have to call you during dinner. It's not necessarily convenient for you or when you're, you know, yeah. you're doing something else. Well, if we invite you to take an email survey, you can take it at your convenience. And uh, it's still uh, controlled and scientifically conducted, so we're drawing a random sample. We're not just emailing everybody. Uh, we still control the, um, the environment that you take the survey, so it's still unbiased. Uh, and, but it's also a kind of a great simulation of actually how people vote because they're seeing things the way that you would see a ballot. Most people see information. Is it, is it in multiple parts? I know you, you, do, you answer a question two or three and then continue to the next step and then... And then, and then yep, yep. Yeah. And then and we also control, for, we make sure that, right, you're, you're you know, it's, it's uh, the information that you're seeing on a particular page. What it looks like is important. So we do, we do all of the programming in-house so that yeah. we're, we're super controlled about how it, how it looks. So, uh, so it is a, uh, as we get more and more email addresses on file, we're able to utilize it more and more. And, um, and we think it's a very, we've, in the last election cycle, we were using it a lot, and we found it was actually a very good uh, predictor, actually, of elect election results. And it's especially nice because you can show, in addition to maybe reading information, you can also show pictures. Uh, we use it a lot for even non-political type of things, so uh, where you can, you know, show a picture, have you seen this ever, or, uh, you know, some some other types of... Have you seen how good-looking Gavin Newsom is? Yes. Well, you know, and actually with that, you know, candidate pictures make a difference. So now we can actually show, so maybe we'll read, a, uh, you know, a, a bio about somebody on the phone. We would have just read a bio, and now we can actually put a picture next to that. So... Uh, you know, which we're finding you can also do sampling to see whether or not it makes a difference. So does it make a difference to people uh, if we don't show, we take half the sample and we don't show them the picture, the other half of the sample when we show them That's a picture, if there's a racial element, yeah. uh, you know, we see whether or not sometimes people react either positively or negatively to either gender or race the or appearance. things like that. Richard uh, Nixon won the exactly. Kennedy-Nixon debates on the radio. So, yeah, and you know. appearance is a big issue. Yeah. Um, you know, the feedback we've had, um, just parenthetically, but when we talk about the survey, you were, we've already talked about this, but man, I got some of the most angry calls I've ever <laughs> had from people who said Capital Weekly was invading their privacy. How did you get my email yes. address? How dare you? And not knowing that the email addresses were available in the 
list and they're available to everybody. I mean, this is really, and we I know we sent out millions and we got, or hundreds of thousands, and we only got maybe 20 complaints. We get those too. We, we um, I, if, if someone's listening and they weren't responded to, I apologize, but we really do actually try to respond to every okay. single email. The other thing we do um, when we send out the invitation, so the email invitation comes from a person, and we always make it from a person who actually is on our staff. So there are surveys that go out and, you know, Ruth Bernstein is inviting you to a survey. And we frequently will have people find, you know, they'll look on our website, make sure that we're a real person and email one of us and ask us a question. Do you have any language there about, uh, we obtained your email from the I don't think we say that, but we do have an opt-out. Um, so we always oh, have okay. an opt-out because yeah. you, legally you have to have an opt-out. And if someone opts out, we take them, we, we don't contact them again. So, uh, you know. No. I'm not sure even how to ask this question, but are the people who are likely to respond to an email you contact in this way, are they predisposed? Are you self-selecting out by people who will respond to that versus people who won't? So they may be a, a little bit more of an active participant in, you know, but Just like we have the same sit, thing on the yeah, phone. Yeah, somebody's uh, willing to sit through a 20 minute phone interview is a little bit yeah. sometimes different. You try to control for that. And we do okay. try, we, we control carefully for that. So we do, um, we do get higher response rates for some reason. I think, um, uh, you know, men, younger people. So we actually control our invitations to make sure that we correct for that. So we... Um, the mansplainers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the mansplainers want to tell you how to redo they, your poll. Exactly. So, can, can you, you know, we try to... With, when you get the emails from the state, um, can you tell anything other than the email address? Does that give you other information, or is there other information? Well, it's tied get? to the voter records. So what, right. one of the things that when EMC wants to do a poll, and they say we need to get a random sample from L.A. County, uh, we can, at political data, we can send them a random sample, and in that random sample, it will have their birth date, their ethnicity, their surname, okay. the, the party type of their household, their registration, when they registered, how they registered, um, when they turn in their ballots, if they vote by mail, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, yeah, and they can also do things where they get this data segmented by people's age and ethnicity and yeah. party. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, you know, if you do have this uh, thing where people who are doing the online survey are more likely to be younger men, well, you can then... You're saying Bernie Sanders emails. is going to do very well yeah. under this. Yeah, but, but you can send can more emails that. to, you, yeah. you stop sending emails to younger men at right. some point, and you start sending more emails or reminder emails to the other subgroups. We did this in the Capital Weekly poll, where we essentially at one point created a matrix of like uh, 16 different uh, groups, and we wanted to make sure that each of the groups was equally represented, and at some point we would just send only emails to women who were over 59 years old because we were really low in that number. And we have exactly the same thing. We actually have our historic response rates from all the, we've been keeping track of response rates in surveys in various communities. And so we know that communities of color tend to be a little bit lower response rate. So when we initially send an invitation, we over invite in that population, whereas we know younger uh, might be quick to respond, so we under invite. So we actually try to control for it on the front end too, so that we're right. We're, you know, making sure that our demographics are as close as we can. You know, we 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 know that that this type of methodology uh, is. It, we get a lot of folks in the over 65. There's plenty of email addresses for over 65. There All aren't right. as many. Yeah. There aren't as many as we get to like over 75. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. And this is part of the art of polling, and that's that. 
you know, I have people calling us and saying, well, I can just send a bunch of emails to people and ask them what they believe. But the yeah, reality is that you can't because it takes experience. It takes, uh, you know, real people who've been doing actual polling and understand that there's 19 different ways to ask a simple question and that depending on how you ask the question or how you present the question or, or how you reach out to these voters makes a difference in the kind of results you're going to get. Um, you can't just trust if you send out emails to everybody in the state and ask them, you know, 15 questions. You really have to have a pollster who knows what they're doing to give it any value and credibility. Any lessons learned from the last, uh, from November elections that things you might do differently this time around? Or? With the email stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, we did uh, two really large email studies uh, around the voters. It was kind of like an exit poll. Uh, of voters, that as, as they were returning their absentee ballots, they were automatically getting emails asking them who they voted for. And we found that to be really interesting. Um, we definitely had this uh, issue with kind of a bias of certain subgroups that were way over participating than others. Um, but what I really think we kind of did a lot to work the kinks out on was how can you best use uh, this voter file to email to like a survey monkey or other kind of you know platform uh, to get good responses and then I think what we're gonna find is like the next wave of this which we'll talk about next week mm -hmm. is how do we use online surveys in this way and pair them with traditional phone surveys to try to get a um, a study done that can be done uh, you know quicker and have better response rates from more different groups and be higher quality. Right. And we're doing a lot of that now, the, yeah. the combination. It's really about how do you get good data. When you have good turnout, you have a lot of people participating, a high turnout, is this good for Democrats? Yes. Gen traditionally it has been. If, if the low turnout population is going to be more likely to be minorities, younger voters, and people who live in apartments, then traditionally those are going to be better for Democrats. That, that turnout's going to yeah. be better for Democrats. And when you advise candidates, if you're advising, a, I mean, you guys, you do both, but I mean, if you advise a Democratic candidate, are you saying the best time to run is in a presidential election? It really depends. Yeah, I mean, I mean some mean, people don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, some don't have a choice. Also, we have a lot of Democrat on Democrat races now with yeah. the top two. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of ballot measures, sometimes yeah. we do... It actually comes up more now. with ballot measures. People yeah. are more strategic about targeting ballot measures on elections that are going to have higher turnout because you're more likely to pass a tax increase or, yeah. you know, something like that in a high turnout election. However, on the flip side, L.A. County in that piss-poor turnout election passed, passed. you know, yeah. billions, billions of, dollars of dollars worth of, uh, of funding for mass transit and homelessness and, and, and community colleges and other kinds of things. So... Um, it's and not one just one-to-one. One. Yeah, and one of the challenges in high turnout elections, it's harder to communicate because there's everybody's voting, so you can't get your message through. So if you're on a presidential ballot, you, you can't communicate about a little tax measure in something. But if you're yeah. the only okay. thing on the well, ballot, you can communicate. Everything's now in November, so although I guess not in L.A., but... No, but uh, you... Right, and also there's June, there's primary local elections. So, yeah. you know, there were some measures, the, the regional, the Bay Area uh, open space measure, or the restoration authority measure, they went in June specifically because it would be easier to communicate when they're the only thing on the ballot versus <laughs> when you're in November... You and there's also there's still yeah. special elections too. Like cities still are running local special elections for marijuana dispensaries oh, yeah, and other time. things like that. And sometimes what can happen is that you know in a city 
then it's going to be 22% turnout. You kind of know who that likely turnout is, and it might be more cost-effective to try to reach them to try then to try to run it in a big election where everybody's turning out and you have to communicate with a lot more people and it's, it costs the campaign five times more money. Um, and, uh, yeah, but all those strategic decisions are why people hire pollsters to try to help them answer the question, is my ballot measure going to do better in a low turnout election, a high turnout election in November or June? That's the kind of stuff pollsters yeah. can really provide a lot of input on. Well, on that food for thought, we'll wrap this up right now. Uh, Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. Ruth Bernstein, thank you very much. Thank you. Tim Foster, thank you very much. And thank you. We'll see you thank next you, time around. All right, thank you. If I didn't record, I'm going to.